How do we feel with our fingertips? What parts of the brain integrate the complexities of touch? And how are scientists creating prosthetics that give back feeling to amputees? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at the neuroscience of touch. The very first moment is what I call the magic moment. After maybe one or two days, you switch on the stimulation. And then I could just tell I had some round in my hand, so it was totally crazy. And so touch has got multiple dimensions to it, and these different sensory neurons in the skin encode for these different dimensions. This is how we're wired. Although we don't think about it very often, it's hard to imagine a life without touch. In my work studying love, I've often thought about its role in bonding and bringing us together, how it can stimulate the release of the wonderful neurochemicals and hormones, as we discussed in our previous episode on love. In fact, touch is the first sense we develop in the womb, and it's the primary way newborns explore the world, from grasping onto fingers to sensing when it's time to swallow milk. And of course, throughout life we use our sense of touch to understand and manipulate our environment, from gently holding a loved one's hand to tightly gripping a tennis racket. Which is partly why, when a limb like a hand or an arm is lost, it's not just the loss of the limb itself that's difficult, but also the loss of sensation that that limb provided. At least, until now. Yeah, my name is uh, Dennis Abo Sorensen. I live in, in Denmark, Aalborg, and uh, I guess why you're talking to me is because I was actually the first person in the world to feel uh, something with a prosthetic. I was a house painter back then and uh, make the world more colourful. It was uh, New Year's Eve uh, 2003, 2004. Yeah, I was at my friend's house and, and we were having a, a very nice quiet evening. Around uh, midnight we went out, as we usually do, to crack it on, you can say. And uh, yeah, it was uh, this defect fire rocket that uh, just blew up in, in my hand. I think in my little town where we are, 150,000, uh, there were six accidents uh, that same night, but I was uh, the one who was uh, injured the, the most. After losing his hand and most of his arm, Dennis used several different prostheses to get some functionality back. But none of these allowed him to fill with that hand again, until he heard about a study. When I lost my arm, I, I had to be curious and, and find out how I could make my my uh, normal daily life better. And uh, when I saw this exciting project, then I knew I just had to go all in and, and to be a part of it. I immediately uh, phoned them up and she, she told me that it will take some time before there will be some progress. And a month later, I phoned her up again and <laughs> I keep doing that for two, three times and then she had to, to invite me for a cup of uh, coffee. After a lot of tests, both mental and physical, Dennis was accepted into the study and flew out to Rome, where he underwent surgery to embed electronics in his remaining stump, which linked up sensors in the prosthesis 
to sensory nerves leading to his brain. It was a bit funny because I had these cable sticking out of the skin because I had to be hooked up to the interface and the computer. When my boys were down visiting me, they called me the cable guy when they saw me. <laughs> and after some calibration, they turned on the prosthetic for the very first time. It was uh, crazy. It was actually the day before we have the official start. Then they were curious and, and so were I. So we just uh, hooked it up and uh, they put this uh, baseball in my hand. When I was blindfolded and, and then I could just tell that I had some round in my hand. So it was it was totally crazy. Yeah, very emotional. And also for all the scientists and professors and they were cheering like uh, small kids for Christmas Eve. It was... It was uh, very, very emotional. It's amazing that you can suddenly distinguish uh, different objects uh, in a robotic hand. Unbelievable. Dennis's experiment lasted 30 wonderful days. And we'll return to how the technology works a bit later. But first, how do we actually feel the sensation of touch in the first place? Well, it's all a part of our somatosensory system the neural network that allows us to feel. The initiation of our perception of a touch really begins with the activation of touch neurons whose endings are embedded within the fabric of our skin. That's David Ginty, a professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School and an expert on all things touch. There are, now we know, a large number of different types of these touch neurons. Uh, many are responsive to very gentle or light forces acting on the skin. We call those low-threshold mechanoreceptors. There's an equally large number of different types of high-threshold mechanoreceptors. They respond to strong indentation forces acting on the skin. We don't know exactly how many different types of receptors exist. I would guess that it's over a dozen. These have been studied for years, decades, really over 100 years. They're really quite remarkable. One type, for example, responds to very high-frequency vibrations that send ripples across your skin. Another responds to just deflection of individual hair follicles or individual hairs that will excite a particular type of touch-responsive neurons. There's one type that we think responds just to movement across the skin, a gentle stroke across the skin. And, and so we're trying to figure out what all of these types are, what they look like, and how they respond to different uh, dimensions, if you will, of mechanical stimuli. Once activated, these neurons propagate electrical signals from the skin into the central nervous system. Initially, these signals are received by the spinal cord and brainstem. And ultimately, the signals are propagated all the way up the somatosensory hierarchy to the brain. We think of the somatosensory cortex, a region of the forebrain of the cortex that's devoted to processing touch signals. So a big question in the field is how these dozen or so different types of sensory neurons uh, whose endings are embedded within the skin, how ensembles of activities of these neurons are interpreted by the central nervous system, spinal cord, brainstem, cortex, to give rise to the percept of a particular touch. A high-frequency, low-intensity, warm vibration feels different than silk, for example. So, and so touch has got multiple dimensions to it, and these different sensory neurons in the skin encode for these different dimensions, and the CNS interprets these signals to give rise to the perception of silk or a vibration or the flutter of a mosquito who's landed on your arm. So you mentioned there's a, there's a range of mechanoreceptors. 
What about temperature? Is that something that we would include in, in, in this area of receptors or is that something different? Yeah, somatosensation really is multidimensional. We think of touch as one of the five senses, but you really have to expand on that view quite a bit. Even touch has multiple components to it, right? There's vibration. A vibration is different from texture. There's a temperature component, cold and warm, for example. And so there are dedicated neurons in the skin that respond to particular temperatures. There are neurons that are dedicated to detecting cold temperature. There are neurons that are dedicated to detecting warm or hot temperatures. There are some neurons that don't really care so much about absolute temperature. They care about the change in temperature. So if your skin temperature drops from a warm to a cool temperature, that change in temperature is detected by a particular class of neurons. Uh, so they're dynamic detectors in that sense. Uh, so there are neurons dedicated to uh, temperature. Some of the neurons in the skin we call polymodal because there are a subset of these neurons that respond both to temperature changes and mechanical stimuli. So they respond to different modes of cutaneous stimulation. So these are called polymodal. So, so it's quite complex. I was going to say, so, so it's a little bit like, you know, you start unpacking this box and it just seems to be getting more and more complex the more you unpack it. Is that what's happening? Or, or do you feel you're slowly getting a handle on this it complexity? It is more and more complex. I would say it's more and more interesting. Yeah. And it more and more makes sense uh, given the richness of somatosensation. What's really nice is that, uh, you know, we study these uh, responses in, in tractable model systems like the mouse. Uh, they're very well conserved from the mouse to the human. Uh, as far as we can tell, all of the somatosensory neurons in mice uh, are pretty much exactly like they are in humans. So they're very well conserved across mammals. So we can take the mouse model and apply it directly to humans, we think. That's right. What we understand and learn from the mouse in terms of the properties and even functions of these neurons can be applied to humans. Okay. And, and ultimately, what by understanding this system, what do you think the the... Is there a real-world application? How, where, where do we apply this knowledge now that we're starting to get it? There are disorders that affect our sense of touch. Many pervasive developmental disorders, including children with autism, uh, frequently have overreactivity to light touch, touch that wouldn't necessarily bother. Some children would become bothersome to uh, certain children with autism. We want to know why that is. Some of the findings that we've had in my own lab one thing that we found is that the transmission of light touch signal in models of autism is perturbed. So the signals coming from the periphery into the central nervous system are augmented because the gain is really not turned down like it should be on that synapse. Okay, so, we get, so somebody who's autistic in a way gets a ramped up touch sensation, and that's why they might be so incredibly hypersensitive to, that's right. to that level of touch. Exactly. We think that some individuals with autism can be oversensitive or overreactive to light touch because of alterations at that synapse and a very low level of the hierarchy. Uh, and adaptation also can function at that level. So you adapt to constant stimulus or repetitive stimulus. Uh, we know, for example, that you really don't typically feel the clothes you're wearing because your body adjusts or adapts to that. And so this level of adaptation we think can occur at multiple stages or multiple levels along the hierarchy. And these forms of adaptation uh, may be dysfunctional in certain conditions that lead to overreactivity. So not only is it overreactivity, but it's a lack of adaptation to constant stimulus. There are children with autism who really 
can't wear tight clothing or they you know, really don't like the label on the back of the shirt, uh, they have to remove it or they have to wear baggy pants because they can't adapt to certain types of clothing. Okay, so while most people, that, that constant stimuli, that, that signal is in a way turned down and we adapt to that, people with autism, that's just going to constantly feel like they've been touched by that clothing for the first time. Not all people with autism, but some More than 95% of children with autism have some degree of overreactivity or underreactivity in one or more sensory domain, somatosensory, touch, visual, and auditory in particular. Does our sense of touch alter as we go through life? Or do we pretty much maintain? Because obviously other senses can degrade. Is touch the same? While the sense of touch is um, functional at birth and indeed in utero, it is in, it by no means mature. You know, like all aspects of the nervous system, touch continues to develop. The neurobiology, uh, neurobiological mechanisms of touch continue to develop postnatally and certainly for the first several years of human, human life. There's a quote that I love from Diane Ackerman. Uh, she speaks of touch as being the first to ignite and also the last to, to leave us. I think uh, there's some, some truth to that. That being said, we've looked at touch receptors in the skin in members of my own lab, and I'm the most senior member of the lab and therefore the oldest, and my touch receptors uh, certainly look uh, not quite as good and healthy as <laughs> the younger members okay. of the lab. So I think it's interesting to consider the degree to which the primary receptors themselves and the central mechanisms uh, change as we, as we age. David explained that some of these touch receptors are absolutely massive. The Pacinian corpuscle responds to very high frequency vibrations and is visible with the naked eye at a whopping one millimetre long. And of course, the skin all over our body is covered in all these different types of receptors. But... We'll all be familiar with the fact that our lips, for example, are much more sensitive to touch than, say, our legs. So, how does that work? Our producer, Eva, is here to explain. As humans, we're obsessed with exploring the world with our fingertips, from feeling the fuzz of a peach to the crustiness of a fresh loaf of bread. And it's for good reason. Although we have sensory nerves and touch receptors all over our skin and even on some of our internal organs, they aren't equally distributed, making some areas of skin feel much more spine-tingly sensitive than others. You can test this on yourself easily using the two-point discrimination test. Find a friend and give them two toothpicks and ask them to place them about an inch apart on your leg. Now, without you looking, they should gradually place the points closer and closer together, all the while asking you, can you tell if there are two points? Or just one. At some point you won't be able to tell them apart and if you repeat this over different parts of your body you'll find that your ability to discriminate the two points is far greater in your fingertips or lips than your legs or arms for example. And that's because you have many more nerve endings in those places with more than 3,000 touch receptors in each fingertip alone each covering overlapping fields of skin, with different receptors picking up temperature, pressure, vibration and more, as David described, all combining to create a singular experience of what something feels like. But that high sensitivity in our fingertips is just because we're humans. The star-nosed mole, for example, has much greater acuity in its nose, 
as that's its primary way of exploring the world. The sensitivity and acuity of the prosthesis Dennis tried back in 2014 has continued to improve, and more people have been part of studies to trial this technology. My name is Loredana Pulisi. Who spoke to us with some translation help from her son, David. Okay, so my name is Loretana Bulgisi. I'm 59 years old. Um, I live in Sicily, in the south of Italy. Uh, I have a pasta shop and one day, it was Christmas Eve of uh, 2015, I had uh, my hand inside one of the machines that we use. And um, this machine was open, so it was not supposed to start but it did start. Unfortunately, my hand was inside. It kind of got uh, torn away. I had a lot, a big uh, blood loss, but uh, thankfully I'm here. So So the experiment began with the um, surgery in uh, end of June, 2017. During eight hours of intervention, they four electrodes So it was a very long surgery. It was about eight hours during which they were implanting those electrodes. They were connected directly to the terminal part of the nerves. Uh, Since these nerves are really tiny, a microscope was needed. I remember it was a really specialized surgeon who did this. When they turned the arm on for the first time, having calibrated it, what could you feel? So for this part of the experiment, I was blindfolded and I was able to identify if it was a smooth surface, if it was spiky like the Velcro, or if it was uh, bumpy. I was uh, happy of trying these, these new feelings that were really unique. A key difference between Dennis and Loretana's experiences was that Dennis could only use the hand while seated at a table in the lab. He couldn't walk around or carry the equipment with him. But by 2017, the technology had advanced enough that Loretana could just wander. I was walking around Rome with a backpack, so I touched a cat. It was a big one, a Persian and uh, the flowers near uh, Ponte Milvio. Yeah, it was uh, interesting to have those feelings. My mother is saying if you hear the Professor uh, Michela, she would like to say hi to him. (laughs) And funnily enough, we did happen to head to Campus Biotech in Geneva to meet the man behind the technology Dennis and Loretana enjoyed so much. I'm Silvestro Michela, I'm a professor of neural engineering and I work on neuroprosthetics, so implants in different parts of the nervous system to restore sensory and motor function in disabled people. And in particular, what I've been working on in the past 20 years is to restore touch in people uh, with limb amputation. So the hand looks like a robot's hand, I think it, we'd imagine from sci-fi. So it's it's got a plastic palm and body. It's got metal fingers which are jointed. But then at the very tips, it's got sort of rubber tips with what look like 
a bizarre form of a fingerprint actually at the end of them. So the hand that we are looking at right now is the one we use for the first implants with Dennis in particular. And as a, is a myelectric prosthesis for the movement and has very simple cable sensors for the touch information. At that time, it was enough to get a lot of information for Dennis. He was able to use it for shape identification, for compliance identification. Then we moved to a more complex system, also with Loretana, adding a 3D sensor on the fingertip. It was used for texture. And then the next step is now to use another evolution with a lot of sensors placed all over the hand uh, with Benjamin T. from National University of Singapore. And Silvestro has been interested in doing this work since he was very young. You said you always wanted to do biomedical engineering. What made you want to do that? Was it something, was it something from childhood? Uh, comics. <laughs> okay, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, uh, uh, comics and TV series. There was the Six Million Dollar Man uh, TV show. I mean, for the young people, it doesn't mean much. But the idea was that this guy was an astronaut, uh, collapsing uh, uh, and destroying everything of himself. And then there was this guy saying, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. And you know, I wanted to be that guy. The guy being able to say, we have the technology to rebuild people. And if I was 15 or 16. Then there was the Dr. Octopus, you know, the bad guy of Spider-Man. And this kind of uh, Iron Man. I mean, and you know, that was the idea. Do you think we underestimate the importance of touch we just take it for granted so in general it's something that you realize that is important when you don't have it because it's obliging you to spend more time on something that you consider automatic like grasping a mug or for example bonding and relationships if i'm not sure that i'm going to give you caressing your face in a safe way it could be difficult for me to do that. And even if I do that, I don't get any feedback. So maybe you can have a sensation that I'm caressing your face, but I don't get it because I'm not able to get from the prosthesis back this information. So losing touch and position information, meaning that your new hand is not part of your body, what we call embodiment, is not happening. And this is extremely disturbing. People don't like using a prosthesis also because it's a tool, not part of the body. So at present, if I were to lose my arm, what are the prostheses like that are currently available to people in that position? So there are three kinds of prosthesis: Cosmetic ones, which are completely passive. So then there are myelectric prostheses, which are a couple of degrees of movement for a couple of grasping tasks controlled by residual muscles of the subject. So the subject contracts the muscles and in a way or another, this is translated to the movement of the hand. There are no sensors or maybe in one case, there is a very simple sensor embedded and this makes necessary for the subject to look constantly at what he or she is doing to be sure that the grasping is happening, that there is no slippage of the object and this kind of thing. So it's a very conscious thing. Grasping something, you're having to look at it, you're having to engage your conscious brain, essentially, to do that. Yes, and even in that case, the ability of extracting information is extremely limited. The idea is exactly to restore all the sensory information related mainly to touch, but also to position of the fingers. So can you explain for me the actual route, the actual process from A to B of how the system works? 
Yes, we try to replicate what happened to everybody. So the prosthesis has sensors embedded. When I grasp an object, the sensors get the information about the mechanical stimuli, the fact that I'm grasping. This is, is in, translated into electrical stimulation, into electrodes, small uh, pieces of polymers implanted into the nerve. And then this current goes through the nerve, is activate some part of the nerve, which convey the information up to the brain. If I do it properly, then the patient gets the information that something is happening to the hand. And since there is a connection between the phantom sensation, I'm feeling something on my own end, and where the sensors are in the prosthesis, the patient is able to say, okay, in my finger is happening something. So how do you translate that language? How do you calibrate that, that hand so that it, it works for that person? They feel an appropriate sensation. The very first moment is what I call the magic moment. You, after the implant, after maybe one or two days, you switch on the stimulation and you have several channels in the electrodes implanted into the nerve and you stimulate each of them. And then you ask the subject, what do you feel? And in general, they immediately refer to position on the hand. So the, the phantom hand, of course, the hand is no more there, but I'm feeling something on the index fingertip in the palm or these kind of things. So then we understand what is the link between the nerve, the sensation we are delivering, and the electrode. Then we start using it. And the interesting thing is that the patients are in general very, very quick in getting it. So after, let's say, I mean, a few minutes, I would say, one hour, no more, they, re- they are able to say, okay, you are pressing here and the pressing is increasing or decreasing. Then what we do is to use this information in real task. So we ask the subject, try to grasp something, try to do something, try, for example, to recognize the shape of the object, the stiffness, the texture, and these kind of things. And it works quite well. We are now working for a chronic implant for good, but the ones we did were only for a few months because the connection were through cables going through the skin, which is something you don't want to go to do for forever, you know, because this inflammation could be complicated. Uh, but yes, the idea for us and other people in the field is really to deliver at home the system. We published a couple of papers showing that it is possible to take the same approach for the legs. So instead of implanting in the arm, the medial or radial nerve or other nerve, you go in the sciatic nerve of the leg and you replicate the same with a sensorized sole, the, the foot of the, of the subject. So I think we can all imagine why touch is so important with the hand. But how is touch important when we're walking? We don't realize it, but we strongly rely on sensory information about ground reaction force. So the force we are generating on the ground while walking. It is important to minimize the risk of falling, for example, to walk in a more in a, in, a, in an easier condition, to walk faster, more confident in this kind of way. And the cool thing is that it's even better. So the patients can get more clinical benefit. They get a reduction of pain, which is common also for the for the upper extremity. But they can walk faster. They reduce the fear of falling. They reduce the consumption of energy because they can minimize the effort. Uh, yes, we can do it. We, we did it, uh, and now there is a company working on commercializing this idea, mainly for the legs, 
because of the numbers of patients, which is larger for, for leg amputees. And there's another common problem amputees deal with that these prostheses could help with too, called phantom limb syndrome. One of the main problems of patients after a limb amputation is phantom limb pain. Because the brain is not getting any more sensation from the limb, gets abnormal plasticity and generate pain, which could be very high and constant over time. You, don't, you get it every minute of your life. For example, Dennis, he has a, a huge pain feeling that the fingers are entering the palm, right. which is constant and extremely painful. While using our device, the, the feeling was that the hand was reopening, which means not only, quote-unquote, the advantage of grasping in a better way, but reducing the pain, which is really a big issue for, for this kind of patients. Because of using the prosthesis and delivering again some even primitive sensory feedback, the brain tries to go back to the normal condition and the pain can be significantly reduced. And in fact, that is what Loretana herself experienced. So I don't know if it was the electrode or the prosthesis itself, but during that period of time, I could feel the sensation of the ghost arm, maybe in the afternoon, today or any other day without the implants. It was um, all day, not 24 hours a day, but like almost. And with those implants or with the prosthesis, it was uh, maybe half of that. So it was only in the afternoon, in the evening. So yes, it, uh, it did help. One of the dream goals of the team is to combine sensing technology with motor technology, similar to what we saw in our movement episode where Michelle was able to walk again thanks to implanted electrodes. But there are other areas too where this type of technology could be helpful. What we're working on is the possibility to control more than two eyes. So what we call supernumerary control. Yes. So the idea is to be able to control your two arms while using also an, an extra robotic arm. Wow. How to do that and these kind of things. It's amazing, isn't it? That something like, I mean, I literally have watched every Marvel film. Um, <laughs> it's amazing that something that, that was uh, science fiction is actually becoming fact and is actually, yes. yeah. I mean, with all the complexity, the ethics uh, and these kind Absolutely, of things. Absolutely, but still... Yeah, this is a virtual reality system. This is an exoskeleton. This is one of the few exos in the world. There are three or four, I think, with two arms together. And we are using it uh, for virtual reality, for controlling the two arms with an extra arm, uh, which in virtual reality, you can move it everywhere. In general, we started with the idea of uh, an alien one, just from the belly. From the belly. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, and now we have a physical version, a very simple one, and we are working on a Dr. Octopus soft uh, arm to be used together with. That's amazing. What's the application of that then? What, what, what would you need your extra arm for? I mean, for a lot for industry, for construction, for example. Mm -hmm. We are also starting working, uh, discussing uh, with a company here uh, making watches, watchmakers, mm -hmm. because they do need uh, a third arm. Because when, when they do the assembly of the small pieces of the watches for the very, very good Swiss watches, you need um, a bit of, you have to be careful, but having an extra arm could make the life of these people easier. Mm. 
That's amazing. Because actually, one of the things in human evolution we always talk about is the use of the mouth as a third hand. So if you look at, for example, mm. if you look at Neanderthals, they have a lot of wear on their teeth because they quite regularly use their mouths as a third ah, hand. I see. So it's a sort of that, but in, in a sort of 21st century way of doing it. Dennis and Laura Tarner are walking examples of what science can do when it really pushes its boundaries. And it was wonderful to meet the scientists who are dedicating their life to making this life-changing technology. Thank you so much to Dennis, Laura Tarner and her son David, Dave Skinty and Silvestro Machera. We're back in a few weeks to explore the neuroscience of pain. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes, where Eva's looking at what can happen when we get our sensory wires crossed, from surprising touch sensations to tasting words. I'm Anna Machen, and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.